church family. It's, it is so great to see all of you here this morning. And thanks for um, inviting me to bring God's word to you this morning. It is my privilege and honor um, to worship with you and bring God's word with you. Um, my name is Byron Che, serve as a Catalyst Coordinator with Fellowship International. So if you don't know Fellowship International, uh, Fellowship International is the mission arm of the Fellowship Baptist Churches in Canada, and we represent over 500 churches across Canada, coast to coast, and Grace Baptist Church being one of them. Um, it's just so good to just worship with you as a family, and um, just so privileged to join you this morning. Um, just want to give you a quick update uh, of, uh, of our work. Um, recently, we uh, were in Turkey, Istanbul. Uh, we flew out about 30 of our missionaries. We have about 90 missionaries in total, but we uh, flew out maybe 30 missionaries to Istanbul, spent about 10 days just doing a lot of trainings, working together, fellowshipping one another. Uh, but what was amazing about this time's conference was, like, was that unlike any other conference where you just bring missionaries and then um, fellowship one another, break the bread, and um, um, do a lot of trainings, we actually got to invite their national workers, meaning their local pastors, their local missionaries from different places. So although it was 30 missionaries, we had about, you can see like four, 50 in total of them joined us in Istanbul to spend 10 days with us. And the purpose of doing that is that it's not just the West that's teaching unreached people groups, but it's the West that needs to learn, now learn from the movement that's going around around the world. And, um, and also our vision is not to just send missionaries, but, also, but really to empower the nationals, meaning we want to empower the national workers or local workers to plant churches, start discipleship, and really taking the ownership of God's mission so that it's not just missionaries doing it, but it's really the locals who's taking in part. So that was what this summit was all about. Um, and I asked one of our long-term, long-time uh, missionaries um, to ask his reflection. And he said that this uh, conference was unlike any other uh, conferences that they have done in the last 40, 45 years of missions, that it was a launch to our catalyzing movement strategy, which represented just a game changer time where the nationals to come and spend time with us and empowering them to the task of disciple makings and church planting movements among all nations. So he said how this was one of the best conferences he has experienced. And Pastor Paul was actually uh, one of our missionaries, well, obviously before I joined Fellowship International. He was a missionary to Japan for many, many years. Um, and um, we actually uh, will be sending uh, one young lady to Japan this summer, one young couple in mid-30s with three children to Japan this October, Next year, we'll be sending uh, another couple to Japan. So just, just, uh, just, just amazing to see how God is still at work and God is still continuing what Pastor Paul has done in Japan. So thank you. Thank you so much for your prayer and your ongoing partnership with Fellowship International. Um, just want to send you that greeting from our Fellowship International family. 
So uh, I did bring this, uh, I guess, what do you call this, uh, appeal. So this summer, we actually uh, launched out a new appeal called Empowering the Nas Nations, which is what we did in the summer in Istanbul, but more of an extension to that. So if you want to learn more about our Empowering the Nations appeal, please grab a piece of, uh, I guess, paper in the back. I left lots of them um, in the foyer there, so or you can come and speak to me. Uh, if you want to learn more about it, okay? Right, so, um, yeah, we're going to go into God's Word this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up First Peter chapter 1. First um, Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 13 to 25. So we'll be going through chapter 1, verses thir uh, 13 to 25, verse by verse, and just really unpack what God has prepared for us this morning. Um, just a few weeks ago, uh, I was packing my kids' snacks in the morning. I, got, I have three children who uh, might be joining us at 11 o'clock service. And uh, I was packing, uh, and my youngest son came to me. He's about he's four and a half, turning five, junior kindergarten, you know, in that stage where they start talking back to you. And then they, uh, he started comes to me, and then he tells me how he wanted me to get his chocolate chip cookie. And... Uh, uh, a little bit about me and Hannah myself is that we're kind of, you know, not so much me, but Hannah is, is like a health freak. Like she only packs healthy food for our kids. So only carrots and cucumbers and only fruits allowed in their snacks. But he comes to me all of a sudden saying that he needs to get chocolate chip cookie to school. So I asked him, why do you need chocolate chip cookie? Like because mommy and daddy, we never pack your chocolate chip cookies for your snack. And this four-year-old boy said back to me, saying, my teacher from school said that we need to bring chocolate chip cookies to school, and they're healthy, and I need to bring them to school. Now, as soon as I heard that, I was thinking about, I had a lot of thoughts in my mind, but first thought that I had was, did I think that his teacher said yeah, to bring him chocolate chip cookie? That was probably not true, right? And did I think he was telling me what he wanted? Probably right. Like he was telling me what he wanted. Instead of cucumbers and carrots, he wanted to get chocolate chip cookies to school. So another question that came across my mind was then, did I, did he, or did I, uh, or did we, me and Hannah, did we teach him that lying is a sin, therefore she shouldn't lie? We probably did. Then, who taught him how to lie? Who taught him how to lie? Like, did we teach him how to lie? I don't think so. Have, have we taught our kids that lying is a sin? Just to confirm, yes, we've taught our kids that lying is a sin. And then my last question was then, why did he lie? What well, did he, if lied, right? If you never taught him how to lie, but lying is a sin, why did he lie? You see, we don't need to teach anyone how to sin. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But clearly, there's a need for us to learn stay away from sin. How to not live in sin. And today's passage teaches us that, that very important question to us. By teaching us about our call to pursue holiness, the reason for our holiness, and how to carry out that holiness in all of our conduct as Christ's followers. So let me just give you a bit of context to this passage as we go in here. 
Uh, the context of this passage is Peter writing his letter to encourage those persecuted Christians scattered to different regions in Pontius, uh, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So even though we're not exactly sure who he was writing, what ethnic group he was writing this letter to, we're pretty certain because a lot of scholars would agree to say that he wrote this letter to not only address Jewish believers, but also Gentile believers, meaning non-Jewish Christ followers. And the reason why he wrote it is to maintain unity in Christ among them. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 2, Paul talks about how you are a chosen race, that there is only one race in Christ. There are not many races, but there's only one human race in Christ. And this is clear evidence of uh, God's grace in Peter's life, because if you know that Peter struggled with associating himself with non-Jewish believers. In fact, he discriminated against non-Jewish believers at the dining table, and we see that in the book of Galatians, that he was just not ready for multi-ethnic communities of God. However, what we see is that we see some changes in Peter's life from this letter uh, to multi-ethnic uh, communities of God's people, and it's a clear miracle of God's grace in Peter's life. So without further ado, we're just going to go into God's Word, but let me just open us up as we uh, just listen to God's Word. God, I just thank you for this morning. I pray that as we just hear about God's Word this morning, that you would bless this time and you bring about your revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 13 begins with Paul saying, Therefore, so here the word therefore refers to the great salvation and blessing Peter explained in the previous chapter that we have obtained the outcome of faith, which is the salvation of our soul by repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus' name. Right? Verse 13 begins with uh, therefore. Then Peter brings his exhortation by saying, preparing your minds for action. The context of this point suggests that our salvation needs to lead in action. But some of us might think about Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 9, where Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, that this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Well, it is indeed true that our salvation comes by faith alone and believing in his name. But did you know that uh, when the Greek word for believe is pistio, and Jesus used this word pistio, or believe, 98, 98 times in New Testament. The Greek word pistio was translated in a noun form in English Bible, but when Jesus used it, he didn't use it in a noun form, but he used it in a verb form. In other words, believe is an active per- a participle that cannot or does not remain static. Uh, a famous scholar, pastor, author, uh, Wayne Grudem, um, uh, explains us about what it means to believe. He says, Believe means to ready to see God's word and respond to him with instant obedience. In other words, believe is an action that we do not an object or thing that we possess. That's why James uh, 
2.26, it said, Faith without work is dead. Belief leads in action. But many times, as Christ followers, we think that belief does not require any action. That believing in Jesus individually would satisfy our relationship with God. Well, it is true that we become children of God by believing in his name. But the word of God teaches us that there's more to it. That belief is a call to action. And that's first Peter's, Peter's first exhortation to us this morning. Second thing that we see in this passage is that he says that you need to be sober-minded. So being sober-minded. So what does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, it means that you need to be disciplined because Christian life requires a disciplined life emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And the reason why we need to be disciplined is because there are just too many temptations in this world. So unless we're disciplined, the world will easily deceive us. Every day it will tempt us. Every day it will deceive us. So unless we're disciplined, we will be deceived. So like soldiers, we need to be disciplined and stay focused on God's mission and his goodness to us. And we stay focused on God's mission through prayer, reading of God's word, serving others, worshiping, so that we don't get distracted by this world. And I think that's why Paul said that one of the marks of being a good Christian is like a good soldier in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-4, to where he says, Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Then Peter continues another exhortation in this verse saying that we need to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Meaning we need to be fully confident in the hope that is yet to come because we believe and we are eager for the revelation of Jesus on the last day. You might not be familiar with the word revelation, but uh, the best explanation of revelation is encountering the presence of God. Um, I don't know if you ever watched uh, Larry King live show on CNN. I, I'm not a CNN fan or anything, but uh, growing up, I used to watch uh, Larry, King, uh, uh, Larry King live talk show hosted by Larry on CNN. Uh, what he does is that he uh, just invites people to his uh, live talk show, and he just starts interviewing them, but usually he criticizes them, right? One time he, well, not one time, many times he invited uh, Pastor John MacArthur from California Grace Community Church, and uh, it's on YouTube, so you can Google it up, YouTube it. Uh, but he asked, tried to grill him and put him in the corner, asking, why is Christianity the only way? And then he started grilling, how Christianity can be the only true? So as he tried to just uh, criticize and uh, just prove that Christianity is Wrong. At the end of this interview, John MacArthur uh, 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 talks back to Larry, asking, Larry, you know, Christianity is not about philosophy. It's not a science class, but it's a revelation of Jesus. It's a personal encounter of Jesus, not intellectual understanding or proving, or proving the deity of Jesus. 
And I heard that, wow, that's so true. That we try to approach Christianity with our philosophy or understanding of scripture, which is great. But at the end of the day, Christianity is all about experiencing and encountering revealed Christ in our life through the word of God, prayer, fellowshipping one another, and worshipping, and etc. And that revelation of Jesus is what is yet to come and what, it, what we long to see in our last day. And that is our only hope as Christ followers. And that's why Peter is saying, put your hope in Jesus alone, the revelation of Jesus Christ alone. Then he says this in the next verses. In verse 14, he continues saying, as obedient children. You might wonder, why does God want his children to obey him? Like, I remember my son asking him, like, why do I have to obey God? Well, the reason why God wants our obedience is because he wants, I think he wants structure. And he wants unity amongst his people and his children. And that can only be done with our obedience. And I think obedience is the most important element in a father and a son relationship. John MacArthur once again said that obedience is the only validation, if you go to the next slide, only validation of your salvation. It is the only possible proof that you recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, our obedience to the Father is what characterizes our relationship with him and is the foundation of our relationship with God. Every time you want to disobey, you want to rebel against God, I always tell my friends that it's a sign and it's a reminder of our very nature, which led us to sin. And that's why Peter warns against our rebellious hearts, saying, next verse, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Let's go to the next slide. Continuing on the, the passage. Not only was this a warning from Peter, but also Paul, where he said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind. So be watchful of your rebellious hearts against God's will and his desire. Rather, he says in verse 15 to 16, which is the big idea of today's passage, says, but as he who called you is holy, but you are, or you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, it says we are called to be holy because God is holy. In Old Testament, things that are holy were both set apart from sin and devoted to youth, the glory of God, because God is holy. And he did not take anything that is not holy because, once again, he was holy. See, being holy means to be separated from sin. And R.C. Sproul puts God's holiness like this. Holiness is the characteristic of God's nature that is at the very core of his being. So God is holy. But what does it look like for us? You might think that because we're now holy, do we need to be separated from sin? Yes, by all means, we need to be separated from sin all, all we can. Then, but then should we be isolated from the world because the world is wicked? Should we keep hiding ourselves in the church building so we can remain with holy people only? Well, that is not the purpose of God making us holy because Jesus teaches us 
what it means to be light and salt of this world. But if the light stays within the light, how can it be illuminated? If the salt remains with salt, how can the salt produce its saltiness? To be light and salt of this world, we have to go to places where there is no light and saltness. To be true light, we need to go into the darkness to shine the light of Jesus, the gospel, in this world. To be the salt of this world, we need to produce the saltness where it's needed. It might be your work. It might be your school. It might be our city. It might be our nation where gospel needs to be illuminated and saturated for the sake of the gospel and its glory. And this is why we should not follow the pattern of this world as God's holy people. We're called to be holy because he has chosen us to be holy in this wicked world. Then Peter gives several reasons why we must be holy. One reason, he says, is because we, we must be holy is because we call upon the Father who is holy in verse 17. It says, if we call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. It sounds like a circular logic, but it's an emphasis on God's holiness to us. And our holy God is a true judge who shows no favoritism just because we are his children. It's not that he doesn't love us or doesn't accept us as his children anymore, but he says God will judge us impartially as written, meaning he will treat us, well, he will treat us uh, equally no matter what, but he will still have to judge us according to our deeds. And that's what it means to impartial, or impartial God, we believe. And that is why Peter urges us, saying, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, in the Bible, the word fear appears a lot. And what it really means is to show respect and reverence and to serve God faithfully. You might be wondering then, why should we fear him? Why should we respect him? Why should we serve him? Well, it's because he is a righteous God. Psalm 11 verse 7, Psalm is praises God's nature or his righteousness, saying, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and upholds a and he upholds, oh, sorry, and upright shall be, behold his face. He is the God who brings justice. He is the God who brings his judgment. But he does that out of love and grace impartially. That's why we need to show respect. That's why we need to fear his righteousness. But we live in a time where we think we deserve respect from others because we're always right, and our culture affirms our self-righteousness. You know, our culture teaches us that there is no absolute right or wrong as long as we feel what is right is the right thing to do. See, being right is a relative and how we feel about ourselves. And because of this, we become such a self-righteous people in this world. And you know, this view completely opposes God's plan for this world because the Word of God teaches us that only God is righteous and we are fallen. Therefore, His people must fear Him and His righteousness. Now, this is why we must fear Him. 
fear him in a sense, not to be intimidated or scared by him, but to show him our respect and stand in reverence of his presence because he will judge us impartially according to his righteousness. Don't worry, we won't be condemned because Christ has done what Christ has done for us, but will be judged by our deeds. That's why Proverbs 9.10 says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. See, another reason why we must embrace God's holiness is because of what His holiness did to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, in verses 18 to 21. It says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile whales inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb of like that of lamb, sorry, like that of a lamb without a blemish spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, he's the only one who can make mankind holy. When, and when he does that, he gets glorified by his work because he reveals that God alone is holy. Now, the Word of God is teaching us today that God did that. And God made us holy while we were still enemies to him. And he, he did that through the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son. And we were ransomed from the unholy nature because of his precious blood of, precious blood of Jesus. And all glory to our holy God who did this and made it available to those who repent and believe in Jesus' name. And he is the source of our holiness and salvation. Romans 5, 10, it says, For if, because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. So the reason why we pursue holiness in our conduct is not that we want to become a better kind, but because God is holy and he will judge us impartially. And it's because of what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we fear him, it is the most God-honoring and Christ-glorifying thing to do. Now, Peter leaves with some implication for us to consider in this passage, which is my uh, implication to you this morning. In verses 20 to 25, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another, or love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and it's all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. What it really says is that we need to show brotherly love one another. But let me show you this paint. So I don't know if you know this paint. Um, this paint is, next slide. Oh, this paint is called uh, Supper at Emmanus. And uh, it's painted by an Italian artist named Caravaggio. See, Caravaggio's painting of Christ is somehow unusual for his time because you notice that when the, man, the gentleman in the middle is beardless 
and he's our Christ. Perhaps what he tried to uh, convey us is the disciples' failure to recognize risen Christ when they first encounter him. And that's, that's what happens to most of us. When we first encounter him, we don't really recognize who he is. But what this picture captures is the dramatic moment of disciples' recognition of risen Christ eventually. But you see one man, man on the left-hand side of Jesus, is pulling his chair towards us in all of his presence. It's as if he's creating a space for us to move into the picture so that we may experience him also. And you see Jesus in the middle, whose arms are ex- what arm? whose arm is extended to us as if he's inviting us forward. And in addition to that, I don't, I don't know if you can see that, we see a basket of fruits that seems unsettled and teetering on the edge of the table. It's about to fall unless somebody quickly jumps into the picture to catch it. It almost demands that we need to take action into the picture to catch the basket that is about to fall. Now the message behind the painting is that is this, that it's alluding that we need to be active participants when we encounter his presence. Therefore, encountering Christ is called to action, involvement, participation, which you can remain as a passive participant or spectator anymore. It's like when the basket is about to fall, we don't start thinking about how many seconds it will take to fall, or we don't start making strategies, we immediately jump into it. Like the disciples, how meeting Christ resulted in them returning to the city and proclaiming his resurrection, our encounter with Christ should lead us towards his mission. It leads in action. But here's the challenge we face every day. We live in a secular world and where its message about Christianity, therefore the cross, is that God is dead and the world is without God, said German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And that is where the message of secularism ends. But my friends and my brothers and sisters, did you know that that's where the message of the cross begins? That the message of the cross begins with God having died on the cross, but on the third day, he rose again. That all the research on the scientific revolution and enlightenment and modernity led to this one terrible yet one-sided conclusion saying that God is dead and we live in a world without God. So live however you want. Your feeling is most important. And that's how we become self-righteous people and we don't fear God anymore. But the message of the cross says that that's where God begins his redemptive plan to the world from the death of his son Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And that's where his mission was being reproclaimed by giving all authority to his son Jesus Christ and his command us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything, everything he has taught us to do. So where do we begin with this mission? Well, my friends, doesn't God make clear his care for three groups of people in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament? 
For example, in Exodus chapter 22, 21 to 22, where it says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. If you are a sojourner in the land of Egypt, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. We see God's care for sojourners, widows, fatherless, throughout the Bible. And you might wonder, who are these sojourners, widows, fatherless children around us? Well, it is people who are wandering around because they lost their homes. It's a woman who lost their loved ones in the war or abusive relationships. It's the children who lost their parents in the war or they're being abandoned. Think about refugees. They're wandering through our city and were brought into our city. And I'm not making any political statement here, but I'm just saying that there are people who are wandering around because they lost their homes. There are widows who lost their loved ones in the war. There are orphans who lost their parents from unfortunate circumstances or war. And we do live in a time where there are more refugees in the world than any other time in the history of the world. And we do live in that city where our government is bringing lots of, lots of refugees. And we are surrounded by these people who are wondering to find a home. Now, my brothers and sisters, what action will you take for them today? Peter ends today's passage saying that this is the gospel. This is the good news that was preached to you. My brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that has been preached to you. And those who are investigating Christianity and exploring what it means to believe in God, this is the gospel, the good news that is now being preached to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gospel and the beauty of it. I pray there will be God's people who uh, will just immediately respond to your call um, to bring peace and prosperity and your glory to our city by reaching those who are far from you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 